Good job. It's great to hear how children read today. Do we have junior church today, Carl? Okay, it wasn't in my notes. Children dismissed to junior church at this time. So children go to junior church, and if you would just stay there in Genesis uh, 3, because we're going to be talking about that here in just a moment, Genesis 3. And um, Ken, if you would send up my PowerPoint, I know it takes a moment to come up there sometimes. I'm grateful. I want to begin to acknowledge once again um, our veterans. I'm grateful for all of our veterans who uh, gave us the safety and the securities we have today. You know, one of my memories of Memorial Day, that's good, and I'll take it from there. Thank you. My memories from Memorial Day was always, I was a Cub Scout as a, when I was in elementary school, and on Memorial Day, we would always take flags. We had a veterans cemetery in Dayton. We have a VA cemetery in Dayton, and we'd always take flags and put them on all the graves, and I always was eager to get to my grandfather's grave and put the flag on his grave. So once again, I give great gratitude to all of our veterans and for our freedoms, and Memorial Day was actually created after the Civil War. I don't know if any, maybe many of you know that, maybe all of you know that. It's created after the Civil War because we had such a great loss of life in the Civil War. We wanted to remember those who had died for the country, for the union of the country, really. Anyways, grateful for that. You know, as we think about this, I have found this little comic strip, and I don't know if you can read it, but it says, This is great. I wish every weekend was Memorial Day as a father's barbecuing with the family and the family on the other side says, for some families it is, as they look at mother with her children, at a picture of the deceased father and the flag there. You know, for many, every week, every day is Memorial Day for those that have given their lives for our country. Sometimes veterans come back from the service, though, and they come back not the same way. They can't unsee what they've experienced. They can't unhear what they've experienced. And they come back with hurts, habits, or hang-ups. And in reality, though, we all have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. We all have hurts, habits, and hang-ups, whether we realize them or not. And this is going to transition me into this uh, new sermon series today. I don't know if you know this, but here's some good news. Here's some good news. If you're like most people, you're way above average at almost everything. At almost everything, if you're like most people, you're way above average. Psychologists call this a state of illusory superiority. Also called the Lake Wobegon effect from Garrison Keillor's fictional Minnesota town where all the children are above average. Which obviously means no one's average. Numerous research studies have revealed this tendency to overestimate ourselves. For instance, when, research, when researchers asked a million high school students how well they got along with their peers, none of the students rated themselves below average. 60% of the students believed they were in the top 10%. 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. You think college professors might have more self-insight. Well, let's think about college professors. College profs were just as biased about their abilities. 2% rated themselves below average. Just 2%. 10% were average. And 63% were above average. While 25% of college professors rated themselves as truly exceptional. Get that. 25% rate themselves as truly exceptional. Of course, this is statistically impossible. One researcher summarized the data this way. It's the great contradiction. The average person believes he is a better person than the average person. 
Now just let that sink in a little bit. The average person thinks that he's a better person than the average person. Christian psychologist Mark McMinn contends that the Lake Wobegon effect reveals our pride. He writes, one of the clearest conclusions of social science research is that we are proud. We think better of ourselves than we really are. We see our faults in faint black and white rather than in vivid color. And we assume the worst in others while assuming the best in ourselves. And I believe that is totally true. To begin a, today, I begin a new sermon series titled Life's Healing Choices, Freedom from Your Hurts, Habits, and Hang-Ups. So I'll be preaching on this series for eight weeks. I'll be taking the sermon titles and chapter titles from the book by that name, though the research will all be separate. For example, that illustration I just shared did not come from that book, and I'll be looking at the scripture separately. Anyways, we all have hurts, habits, and hang-ups, though. We all have them, don't we? For example, if you don't think you have hurts, habits, and hang-ups, let's think about some. Have you ever eaten too much? You don't need to raise your hand, but I will. I've eaten too much anytime I pass a Dairy Queen. Have you ever lost your temper? I have. Have you ever been anxious? I have. In fact, I've dealt with anxiety in a much stronger level than that. Have you ever dealt with greed? Are you secure in anyone or anything other than Christ? Now, that's a tough one. Are you secure in anyone or anything other than Christ? Do you desire anyone or anything more than you desire Christ? That would be a major hurt, habit, or hang-up. Oh, another one here. Are you addicted to a substance? Coffee counts. Chocolate counts. Dairy Queen ice cream cake counts. Or blizzards. Or McDonald's fudge sundaes. They're a little bit cheaper. Coca-Cola counts. Are you addicted to a substance? Do you drive faster than the speed limit? Jesus said, if people think they're okay keeping the law, you can even sin in your thought life. You can see Matthew 5, and 28 for that. So we even have to check our thoughts. Because even our thinking can be hurts, habits, or hang-ups, which Jesus wants to help us with, which is the real issue I'm going to get into in a minute. What about your thought life? Are you depressed? I have a special note here. Some of these hurts, habits, and hang-ups are sin issues. Others, such as depression, are not sinful at all. They can be a chemical imbalance. They can be something else going on. But that is not to say that Jesus wants you to just have to live that way. Jesus wants to help us all with our hurts, habits, and hang-ups, whether they're exact sin issues or whether they're just something because of our genetics or because of our DNA or whatever it may be. Maybe you're going through grief. Jesus wants to help us with these things. Most all of us have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And God wants us to turn them over to him. But how do you do that? That's what this sermon series is going to be about. I want to encourage you to turn your hurts, habits, and hang-ups over to Christ. The first step is to admit need. And that's really what today I want to focus on. Admit that you're not God. Admit that we are not God. Admit that we need help. Some of us may think that our hurt, habit, or hang-up is just part of being human. That's not true. Our hurt, or habit, or hang-up is not what Jesus intended and God intended when they created us in the image of God. That's not how they want us to live. It's not how God wants us to live. 
Some of us think our hurt having or hang-up is not a big deal. We think anxiety is just part of life. It doesn't have to be that way. God wants to help us. We think anger is just part of life. It's just the way I'm wired. Mm-mm. That's not how God wants us to live. We think overeating or whatever it may be, or a chemical addiction, or alcohol abuse, whatever it may be, God wants to help us. So my theme today is, we are not God, we need help. I think on, at first looking at that, most of us would agree with that. Most all of us would agree, we are not God, we need help. Some sermons are more expository, walking through a passage. Today and through most of this series, we're making the case from various scriptures, not walking through a book of the Bible like we did with Galatians or Ephesians. Oh, I love teaching through a book of the Bible. This one's a little different. Genesis 3, 1 to 10, uh, Caitlin just did a fabulous job reading through. And that would tell us our nature from the beginning. We have a nature that has fallen from grace. We have a nature that is marred by sin. But this is not what it originally meant to be human. Let's read Genesis 3. I want to read 1 through 7 one more time. Please stay there for a moment. Read 1 through 7 one more time. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Let's talk about this for a minute, for, for a minute or maybe even five. Notice from this passage that God had already created man and woman. God had already created man and woman. And that was in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created We did not create, God did. Now, man and woman are in paradise. They're in the Garden of Eden. They're in the greatest place that you could imagine. But the serpent is there. Snakes always mess things up, unless we're watching them on TV. Maybe that's too much for some of you. The serpent is there, and in this case, a serpent is possessed by the devil. And that really messes things up, right? In verse 1, the devil makes Eve question what God has said. The serpent questioned the word of God. Take note, take note of this. The devil has been asking us to question God's word since the beginning of time. That's not new. When people are denying and questioning the word of God and the authority of scripture, it's not new. That has gone back to the very beginning of time. So the devil is talking to Eve through a serpent. This serpent is demon-possessed by the prince of demons by the devil and the devil says has god really said this and that's verses three through four in verses three through four eve answers the serpent which is the devil notice eve's answer eve stretches the truth but not in a bad way eve says that they cannot eat from the tree in the middle of the garden this is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil or touch it Now get this, God never told Adam that they could not touch it. That's where Eve stretched it a little bit. 
Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe God told Adam, you can eat from anything except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden. Everything else you can eat from except for that. And so Adam passes that on to Eve, and Adam says to his new bride, Eve, he says, come over here, I got something to tell you. And he says, Eve, look, God has talked to me, and God told me I can eat from anything in this garden. Blueberries, yeah, I can eat them. Tomatoes, I can eat them. Although they used to think them, they were, that's a tangent, never mind. Okay, they used to think they were poisonous, but we know they're not. Tomatoes, we can eat them. Grapes, we can eat them. Any of these fruits and vegetables in the garden, even, even the seeds, we can eat them. But then Adam tells Eve, we cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And maybe, just as a precautionary measure, maybe, this is just sanctified imagination, okay? This is not, it's not in the book. Maybe, that's when Adam said, don't even touch it. Let's stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't even touch it, okay? So the serpent slash devil tells Eve a lie. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve eats, and she thinks it's pretty good, so she gives to her husband Adam. From this account, we get the idea of a sin nature. If you look at the next few verses after that, we see they begin to blame one another. And so sin entered the world. Now, many people will say, I am only human, as they dismiss their sin. But God created them fully human before sin entered the world. God did not create us as human to sin. That happened after that. We were not created to sin. Actually, further, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it shows even after the fall, even after sin entered the world, even after humanity was corrupted, we were still created in God's image, and being in God's image does not mean to sin. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. I'm just saying we ought not excuse it. Romans 3, 9 through 23, we see that everyone has been tarnished. Everyone has a sin nature going back to Adam and Eve. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of this nature, it still affects us today. Because of this original sin, going back to Adam and Eve, we have a problem. And this leads to our sin. It also leads to hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Whether those hurts, habits, and hang-ups are sin or not, even if it's a chemical issue, still, it still goes back to the fall of humanity. Pastor Timothy Keller paraphrases an analogy originally used by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, in order to demonstrate the nature of sin in our hearts. Listen to this. Now, this is mainly C.S. Lewis, though Tim Keller wrote about it as well. This is what they wrote. Now, if you want to know if there are rats in your basement, you don't walk to your basement door, clear your throat, and say, I think I'll go down loudly. Clear your throat, open the basement door loudly, clear your throat, and say, I think I'll go down and see if there are rats in my basement. And then jiggle the knob loudly open the door, and in a very leisurely way, turn to the right and to the left, clear your throat, walk down the steps loudly and slowly. Then when you get to the bottom, you look around and you see, well, what do you know? There are no rats in my basement. You've given those rats plenty of warning, haven't you? No, 
This is what C.S. Lewis wrote about. If you want to know if you have rats in your basement, you sneak up to the door, silently open the knob, flick on the switch, jump to the bottom of the steps, look around and set, and then you see the rats scurrying away because you surprise them. Now here's the application with that. Lewis wrote this. The excuse for most of my sinful moments that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected. I was caught off my guard like a rat who did not get enough warning. Now that may be an extenuating circumstance as regards those particular acts. They would obviously be worse if they had been deliberate and premeditated. Everything we do from our fallen nature is worse when they're deliberate and premeditated. However, on the other hand, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. And we all wear masks because we're all still in battle between the flesh, our sin nature, and the Holy Spirit inside of us. The Times, I think it was the London Times, once sent out an inquiry to famous authors. They asked all these famous authors, what is wrong with the world today? And the author, philosopher, G.K. Chesterton, responded simply, Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. I am. And all of us are also... What's wrong with the world? Because we have a fallen nature going back to Adam and Eve. And we have a fallen world going back to Adam and Eve. So we play God and we must not do this. That's my next point here. We play God and we must not do this. We see in the passage which we read from Genesis 3, 1 through 10, that we have a war going on within us. This war comes from our very nature. It's called our sin nature. It started in Genesis 3, as I talked about. Adam and Eve sinned, and then they felt shame. They, they, they immediately blamed each other. Eve blamed the serpent, and Adam blamed Eve. Some 4,000 years later, Jesus came, lived, was crucified for our sin, and then was resurrected. Jesus then sent us the Holy Spirit. Since we have the Holy Spirit, we do not have to sin. But our sin nature still makes us play God. Do you ever think about that? We have the Holy Spirit, and we are new in Christ. We don't have to sin. Some of us just kind of factor it in. I'm only human. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to sin. We just like excuse it. We don't have to. I remember when Chuck Swindoll was preaching, I was listening to the sermon, I think driving through Interstate 75 in one of the worst places in between Cincinnati and Dayton, and, um, and he said, I think we can go for days without sinning. Do you ever think about that? You know, we actually try to follow Christ, try to pursue Christ. We have the Holy Spirit, we don't have to sin, but we do still have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Because we're in a fallen world. We try to control things, we try to play God. Here are a few ways we do it. Our sin nature makes us play God. We try to control our image to make us look better. This is thinking we are God. We try to control other people to cover up our sin and make us look better. We try to control our problems. We try to control our pain. We are playing God. There are consequences for playing God. Fear, frustration, fatigue, failure. These are all consequences for playing God. Fear. We see fear in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. What Adam and Eve did, they kind of hid. They felt shame as soon as sin entered the world. 
Are we living in fear today? We are always, you know, we may always be afraid someone will find out about our hurt, habit, or hang-up. Somebody might find out about our anxiety, our depression, our, our alcohol abuse, our drug abuse, our pornography addiction, our lust, the bad thoughts that we think about in our head. We're always living in fear. Frustration is another, is another consequence of playing God. John Baker Jr. writes this, Trying to run the universe is frustrating. Trying to run the universe, trying to play God is frustrating. Have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese's? We try not to go there, but sometimes we've been there, right? They have this game called Whack-A-Mole. Whack-A-Mole. Use a big mallet to beat these little moles that keep popping up. But when you whack one, three or four pop up again. You whack those and five more pop up. That machine is a parable of life, isn't it? You work on one hurt habit or hang-up, and five more pop up. We whack down one relational conflict, another pops up. We whack down one addiction or compulsion, and another one pops up. It's frustrating because we can't get them all knocked down at the same time. We walk around pretending we're God. We walk around playing God. I'm powerful. I can handle it. But if we're really in control, why don't we just unplug the machine? It proves we're not God. We can't unplug the machine. We cannot handle it. We need to admit we need help. There are at least two other consequences, fatigue and failure. I'm not going to talk about those right now. But there is a cure. Let's talk about the cure for a moment. We need to admit weaknesses and accept God's help. We need to admit weaknesses and accept God's help. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-10, through 10, Paul the Apostle talks about this thorn in his side, and he talks about this near-death experience. It's just an awesome passage. He, it's not just near-death. It actually goes to heaven. And God tells him about the thorn in his side, and God said, My grace is sufficient for you, God says to Paul. My power, God says, is perfected in your weakness. We all have weaknesses, and God's power is perfected in our weakness. We are stronger in our weakness. No, we are stronger in our weakness because we have to depend upon the Lord. But if we do not depend upon the Lord, we're not stronger. If we do not run to the Lord, we're, we're not stronger. If we do not accept the Lord's help, we're not stronger. If we deny our weakness, we're not stronger. If we deny our hurt, habit, or hang-up, we're not stronger. We're only stronger when we admit we need God's help. We need Him. Right now, it just means that we're admitting there is a problem. Our anxiety is something God wants to help us with. Our anger is something God wants to help us with. Our fear is something God wants to help us with. Abusive substance is something God wants to help us with. Abusive drugs, if any of you have problems with drug abuse, God wants to help you with it. If any of you have issues with lust or pornography, God wants to help you with it. God doesn't want you to ignore that. He wants to help you. He wants to set you free. God does not want you to live in fear or worry or defeat. He wants to help you, but you have to admit it. Yeah, you have to admit it, and you must recognize that it is not just part of being human. That's my major fear at Bethel Friends Church, that we just think whether it's sin we're dealing with, anxiety and worry can be a sin. It's not trusting the Lord. Or whatever we're dealing with, we just think, uh, that's not major. I can live with it. God wants to help you. That's not what God wants for you. In fact, you could be compiling sin because you have pride by not accepting help. The American church is terrible 
terrible at being a community. And that includes all of us. We're terrible at just being able to depend upon one another, being a close-knit community, helping each other out. The Bible teaches that we are new creations in Christ. We are new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are new creations in Christ. John chapter 10, verse 10 The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus wants to give us abundant life. He wants to give us new life. He wants to make us new creations. But we have to let him in. And many times we just crack the door open and let him in a little bit on our life. We're not really accepting his help in the fullness. Jesus wants to give us life. We are new in Christ. I encourage you, let God transform you. Here's three steps for now. The first step is to pray about it. Admit you need God's help and pray to him about it. Admit. Pray about it. The next step is to write about it. Write about whatever you're going through. Hurt, habit, or hang up. That's a good summary. Write about it and write about it in a prayer journal. Make your prayers tangible with ink and paper. There's some type of an amazing link between the mind and the hand as you write things out. Write about it in a prayer journal. Write about the anxiety, your fears, your worry, your whatever it is. I'm just using those as examples because I think a lot of us deny them. We deny that our anxiety is a big deal, so we don't talk about it. We just kind of keep it in the dark. But it's an issue. God doesn't want us to live that way. Write about what you're dealing with. Write about it. Next step, share. Share with a close friend about it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 tells us we need each other. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. How many of you, don't raise your hands, this is rhetorical, have prayer partners? We need close Christian friends we can meet with and bear our soul in confession. I dare say a lot of us sin by not obeying James 5, which says to confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. We need that. We need strong, transparent communities where we can confess to one another and we can hear from our close Christian brother or sister, say you're forgiven. Or maybe say that's not even a sin, but it's still not the way God wants you to live. Let's get you help. Audie Murphy was the most decorated soldier, American soldier of World War II. I was fascinated with him at a young age because he was only five foot five. We were kind of kindred spirits here. And... Uh, and, you know, he went into World War II lying about his age at, I think, 17 years old. He's rejected by multiple different troops and finally gets into the Army and became the most decorated American soldier of World War II. But he came back from the war not the same way as the way he went. He came back and he became a movie star. I think it was James Cagney who actually read about him going back to his life in Texas. So James Cagney invited him to, to, to Hollywood and got him voice lessons and because he, he had a strong Texas accent, and he became quite a Hollywood movie star. But the rest of his life, he dealt with major PTSD, what they used to call shell shock. He slept with a gun under his pillow. He called one of his agents at one point, wanting to commit suicide. Eventually, he died in a plane crash. Kind of amazing. He survived all that in World War II and died in a plane crash over Canada, I think it was. He had a hurt, had a hang-up. Part of the fallen world. Not part of anything he did. He went to fight for the country. But he came back with major, major problems. I know that some of you are dealing with major addictions and you're to the point of admitting the need. Awesome. Let's get you help. 
I would love to help you get help. Maybe some of you are already going through help. Awesome. You're a child of God, and God wants to help you through a counselor or talking uh, to different people about it, getting help. I know that some of you do not consider your anger or anxiety or worry a problem, but you don't need to live this way. God wants to help you. The Holy Spirit wants to help you through this. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says he gives us peace. In Philippians 4, 6 through 8, we're told when we pray about something, we can have the peace of God. Over the next several weeks, I'm going to preach about how to turn something over to God. But the first step is to admit you need help. And to admit, because this is what I think happens. Some of us, I'll include myself, I'll use the possessive pronoun us. Some of us think... You know, it's just an issue if it's like a drug or alcohol addiction. And we deny that our own anxiety is something that God wants to help us with. God wants to give us peace. That's what the Bible teaches. But if we don't let ourselves admit it and get help, we don't get any help. James says, you have not because you ask not. I encourage you, find a prayer partner immediately if you don't have one. I would love, you could talk to me. I would love to find somebody to connect with you in the church, a Christian friend. Of course, it doesn't have to be somebody from this church. It could be a Christian friend from another church that you can meet with and just pray and share and, and, and be a cord of three strands, as the Bible says, not easily broken. A while back, I was on vacation, and I attended another church. The pastor shared about hearing the news of his wife's cancer. And he said he had peace through the whole process. How did he have peace? It came from his spiritual walk. Now, for some of us, that's not to say it's that easy for all of us. I don't want to say just because he had immediate peace, he, he did. He could be further along. It could be something else. Some of us, you know, maybe he already had a strong, close connection of prayer partners that he could talk to. And they prayed for him and lifted him up and God gave him that peace. I want to help all of you. Maybe you don't want to wait through this eight-week series to hear the other steps. You know, there's going to be eight principles we're going to talk about here. Maybe you don't want to wait. Seek me out. I would love to talk to you. Call me, text me, email me, whatever. I would love to talk to you. You can talk to me in total confidentiality. Unless you say you're going to hurt somebody else or someone else, I'm required to report that. And that probably goes without being said. You can talk to me in total confidentiality. We, Jesus wants to give us freedom. Jesus wants to give us peace. The first step is that we, we admit that we need his help. Some of us, we're like that whack-a-mole. We just keep trying to push one down. We're denying it. We're denying. We think we're handling on our own, but we're not. And let me tell you, I've been there, and I'm sure I'll be there again, admitting I can handle something on my own, worry, fear, anxiety, control, manipulate, whatever it may be. We can't. We can't. Because we're not meant to live alone. It's not the Christian way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would all seek your help. Of course, the first step in seeking your help is recognizing that we need you. And the first step is recognizing whatever we're dealing with, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay, to, to, to not admit we're not okay. Lord God, help us. Convict us through the Holy Spirit to admit whatever we're going through, that we need help. And you want to help us. You're standing there. You're waiting for us to reach out. In fact, you're even taking the initiative through the Holy Spirit to help us. 
Lord God, help us to reach out. First and foremost, help us to confess we need you. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Help us to believe in you, Jesus, as the one and only Savior, the way, the truth, and the life for eternal life. Help us to commit to you in trusting you as Lord and Savior. Lord, if there's anyone here who is not committed to you as Lord and Savior, I pray today is a day of salvation where they truly repent and make you Lord of their life, where they truly believe, trust, and commit to you, where they truly firmly make the decision to be with you in order to become like you and to learn and do all that you say and arrange their affairs around you. Lord, we need your help. We can only do this by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Before this closing hymn, which is hymn 443, I Need Thee Every Hour, Maybe the Holy Spirit's working on one of you or some of you. You know, we have a prayer altar up here, and I would invite any of you or all of you to come up if you feel led. And myself or uh, one of our elders would be glad to meet you and pray with you when you come forward. Please stand if you're able for him 443. Thank you.